We've got a beautiful psalm to read before we get into our uh, sermon today. This is Psalm 74. It's a contemplation of Asaph. Oh God, why have you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation which you have purchased of old, the tribe of your inheritance which you have redeemed, this Mount Zion where you have dwelt. Lift up your feet to the perpetual desolations. The enemy has damaged everything in the sanctuary. Your enemies roar in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their banners for signs. They seem like men who lift up axes among the thick trees, and now they break down its carved work all at once with axes and hammers. They have set fire to your sanctuary. They have defiled the dwelling place of your name to the ground. They said in their hearts, let us destroy them altogether. They have burned up all the meeting places of God in the land. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, nor is there any among us who knows how long. Oh God, how long will the adversary reproach? Will the enemy blasphemy your name forever? Why do you withdraw your hand, even your right hand? Take it out of your bosom and destroy them. For God is my king from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your strength. You broke the heads of the sea serpents in the waters. You broke the heads of Leviathan in pieces and gave him as food to the people inhabiting the wilderness. You broke open the fountain and the flood. You dried up mighty rivers. The day is yours. The night also is yours. You have prepared the light and the sun. You have set all the borders of the earth. You have made the summer and winter. Remember this, that the enemy has reproached, O Lord, and that a foolish people has blasphemed your name. Oh, do not deliver the life of your turtle dove to the wild beast. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Have respect to the covenant, for the dark places of the earth are full of the haunts of cruelty. Oh, do not let the oppressed return ashamed. Let the poor and the needy praise your name. Arise, O God, plead your own cause. Remember how the foolish man reproaches you daily. Do not forget the voice of your enemies. The tumult of those who rise up against you increases continually. All right, our sermon text for today is going to be Genesis 47 verses 13 through 26. I know that's a lot of verses all at one time, but there's a reason why and I'll explain it in a minute. The sermon today is entitled, What Will a Man Give in Exchange for His Soul? So chapter 47, beginning in the 13th verse says, Now there was no bread in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the grain which they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. So when the money failed in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us bread, for why should we die in your presence? For the money has failed. Then Joseph said, Give your livestock and I will give you bread for your livestock if the money is gone. So, jo so they brought their livestock to Joseph and Joseph gave them bread in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the cattle of the herds and for the donkeys. Thus he fed them with bread in exchange for all their livestock that year. When that year had ended, they came to him the next year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is gone. My Lord also has our herds of livestock. There's nothing left outside, at, left in the sight of my Lord, but our bodies and our lambs. Why should we die before your eyes, before we in our land? Buy us and our land for bread, and we and our land will be servants of Pharaoh. Give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land may not be desolate. <clears throat> then Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for every man of the Egyptians sold his field. 
between, because the famine was severe upon them. So the land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he moved them into the cities from one end of the borders of Egypt to the other end. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had rationed rations allotted to them by Pharaoh, and they ate their rations which Pharaoh gave them. Therefore they did not sell their lands. Then Joseph said to the people, Indeed, I have bought you and your land this day for Pharaoh. Look, here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And it shall come to pass in the harvest that you shall give one-fifth to Pharaoh. Four fish shall be your own, as seed for the field and for your food, for those of your households and for food of your little ones. So they said, You have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants. For those of you that uh, haven't been following these Genesis sermons, it, it may be a little bit confusing. I say this each week as I begin, because what's going on is a panorama of the life of Joseph all the way from the time that he was thrown into the pit and then sold off to Egypt up until now and even into the time of the Exodus. It's all showing a panorama of human history and it's actually prefiguring things that are going to be seen in the book of Revelation as well as throughout the rest of the Bible. So if it's a little confusing, it's not intended to be. It's just that I have to rely heavily on what we've talked about in the past and some of the things that are coming in the future. But all of this today that we're seeing is going to be prefigured in the book of Revelation. Now, I'd originally planned to do this particular sermon in two different sermons. It's actually 14 verses, and that's more than I like to do at any one time. The first sermon was to be about verses 13 through 19, and then maybe go from 20 through 26 or something like that. But as I was typing, I was studying, and I'm there thinking about these things, I had an idea what I thought these verses were showing us, but it didn't seem to somehow fit. It wasn't quite right. And it still wasn't resolved when I got to verse 19. So what I did is I continued on through verse 26. And it wasn't until just before that last verse, verse 26, that I realized that I had fundamentally misunderstood what God is telling us about the future in these particular verses. One word, one word, which is translated by the New King James Version as favor, is what made me stop and reevaluate this entire passage. The word in Hebrew is chen. It's grace. Until that word, I had been misevaluating this entire passage. And so for only the third time that I can think of in all of our Genesis sermons, I actually went back to the beginning and reconsidered every single verse under the proper context. Nothing changes with God. Though we try to insert different things into what God is doing, it is always the same. We are always and we are only saved by grace. Without grace, we cannot merit eternal life. This is the message of the Bible, and it is the truth of God in Christ. Our text verse today comes from Ephesians chapter 2. It's the 8th and ninth verse, and it speaks exactly of that. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God and not of works, lest anyone should boast. Our sermon today is going to be just a little bit longer than usual, but it has to be that way because I had to fit these two sermons into one. But the picture is sure it's reliable, and it is coming upon an unrepentant world. We can either receive Christ now, and we can be ready for him at the rapture, or we will face the most difficult of choices imaginable, life or death choices. Let us not be found in such a crummy position, but let's trust Christ now, place our souls in his capable hands. And the way that we know how to do that is through his word. And so let's go to that word now, and may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. 
I've got three thoughts for you today. The first is no bread in the land. This is verses 13 through 17. Now, as we've seen, the time of Israel in Egypt and then their subsequent exodus is picturing the time of the tribulation period in the future. The reason for this is that when they went to Egypt, it was in the 215th year after the promise made to Abraham, and they will come out of Egypt exactly 215 years later. It's a period of 430 years divided right down the middle. The tribulation period is also divided into two halves of three and a half years each, right down the middle. During the tribulation, there will be great plagues upon the earth, which so closely mirror the plagues during the Exodus that it is not coincidence. Both of these times are times of covenant fulfillment. The 430 years from the promise to Abraham until the law given at Mount Sinai and the seven years which are promised to Israel for the completion of their covenant responsibilities which are detailed in Daniel 9 verses 24 through 27. These patterns are more easily understood when we look at the words of Solomon which I cite many, many times. It's Ecclesiastes 3, the 15th verse which says, What is happening now has happened before. And what will happen in the future has happened before. Because God makes the same things happen over and over again. Now that's the New Living Translation. When I don't cite the New King James Version, I always tell you which version it is. And it was very clear what he's trying to say there. Regardless of the actual time lengths, three and a half years or 215 years, the patterns repeat. It is sufficient that the famine which necessitated Israel's move down to Egypt was for seven years. And the tribulation is for seven years as well. After that, both times Israel is delivered by God's might and by his power. These are the important aspects of what's being shown here. And I say this because today's verses are going to show a dramatic change in the presentation of the events. During the famine in Egypt, it is Joseph who controls and tends to all the needs of his family. But Joseph is also taking care of the people of Egypt who are under his authority. The picture we will see in today's verses is describing a very specific group of people mentioned in Revelation. While Israel is being cared for in one way, there is still another group who is being tended to during that period, and they are known as the great white multitude. And that doesn't mean that they're white of skin. That means that they are white because they're covered in the garments of Christ's righteousness. Verse 13, now there was no bread in the land, in all the land. That's important to look back to our previous sermons to determine what's being relayed here. There are two things that are tied up into this one thought right here. The first is that there was expected to be seven years of abundance followed by seven years of famine. This is based on Pharaoh's dreams, which Joseph then interpreted. This is literally fulfilled in these Genesis stories. And it also pictures the time of famine which comes upon the world in the future during the tribulation. But during that time, there are also two things which are tied up in the picture. The first is that there will literally be a famine on the earth. This is seen in the opening of the third seal in the book of Revelation chapter 6, where the rider on the black horse comes out as a sign of famine. But in addition to this literal famine, there's also looking forward to the famine of the word of God. As we've seen in all of these Joseph sermons, the grain has consistently pictured the word. There is a time coming when obtaining it is going to come at a very, very high cost. And this is certain, and it's probably not far off in our future. Jesus is the bread of life, and the bread of life is found in the Word, the grain, the Bible. Here, then, is the dual significance of this verse. Verse 13 continues, For the famine was very severe. 
This is given here, that particular part of this verse, to show the literal and the complete fulfillment of what was prophesied concerning Pharaoh's dreams way back in chapter 41. Here's what it said when we went through those verses. Indeed, seven years of great plenty will come throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them, seven years of famine will arise, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine will deplete the land. So the plenty will not be known in the land because the famine following it, for it will be very severe. In that verse, the term ki chaved hu me'od, and heavy it, very, was spoken about the famine. The word heavy is what we would expect of a crushing burden, something extremely severe. In this verse that we're looking at, verse 13, it says ki chaved harav me'od, and heavy the famine, very. The reason for explaining this here is not to get bogged down with details, but to see the fulfillment of the details, and how they affect the events which will occur in the Bible. When God says something in prophecy, we can and we should always expect it to be fulfilled literally and completely. And so because we have these details proving the Bible is trustworthy, then we can also be assured of the things that it has promised to us. What good, and I would ask you to consider this, what good is the promise of the return of Jesus Christ to us if any other part of the Bible is wrong? If one part of this book is wrong, then how do we know that Jesus Christ is really returning for us? What good is believing in eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ if the Bible is untrustworthy? I mean, think that through just for a second. How sure are we of anything unless we have something in life which backs up what we believe? But the Bible continuously backs up everything that it says, both internally, as we see in this verse, and also in history as well. And verse 13 continues, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. Finally, in this verse, we see a necessary component of what God wants us to see. It mentions both the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan. Both languish because of the famine. In the picture for the future, it means that there will be a worldwide famine. Both Israel and the rest of the world is going to suffer. Only those who are cared for supernaturally by God are going to prosper. And this is seen in the prospering of Israel in the land of Goshen. But I want you to know something. There's a word in this verse which is translated as languished, which is important for us to look at. It is from the word batala. It means and fainted. It's from a primitive root word, which means to burn. By implication, it means to be rabid or figuratively to be insane. In such a state as being insane, you actually, you know, you burn yourself out and to the point of uh, fainting or to the point of exhaustion. It's used only one other time in the Bible, and it's in the book of Proverbs. There it says this, like a madman, that's the word right there, madman, who f- throws firebrands, arrows, and death is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, I was only joking. For this reason, because it's used in that context in the Bible, some Hebrew scholars apply it to the people. In other words, when it says the land fainted, it is speaking of the people of the land. They have come to their wit's end, and they're willing to give anything for their food. And this perfectly resembles what we think of as the tribulation in the years ahead, hence the mark of the beast and people selling themselves away simply to eat. When there is no bread, how can we sustain our lives? Should, we, should there be a famine, would the land yield grain? How can we feed ourselves, our children, our wives? Could we survive in a time which is lacking in rain? And how much more important to us is the true bread of life? Without Jesus, there's no purpose, no reason to at all. 
Without him, there is only conflict, war, and strife. So now is the time to reach out to him on his name to call. Verse 14, And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the grain which they bought. This verse here is the very last time that the word grain is mentioned in the Joseph cycle of stories. And I know a couple of people here are going, because we went through grain, every detail of it. It reverts now, though, back to the word shever, which is grain in the kernel. It needs to be threshed instead of bar, purified grain, which was last seen at the time that Joseph was reconciled to his brothers Israel. After the rapture of the church, there will be no pure knowledge of the word among the Gentiles as there was before the rapture. And so the people will spend their last dollar to obtain the word of God and to understand it. And this is not a crazy analysis. It is going to be confirmed as we go on. But it is also really pointing to the famine for real food too. There is bread to sustain the body and there is bread to sustain the soul. All of the silver will be spent to obtain these things. What was once of value to the people, meaning all of that amassed wealth, all of that gold and silver, no longer has any meaning. Man will sell his own children and even himself to eat. But before that point, he will look at the silver in his hands and he will realize that it meant absolutely nothing. It's a life of wasted effort put into storing up treasures for himself. Jesus speaks of exactly this in Matthew. Let me read you his words. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In Luke, he expands on this thought and he speaks of the consequences of a life pursuing wealth at the expense of what are true riches. Now, before I read this, I want to remind you that we are admonished in the Bible to save for our children's children. We're to you know, save, we're to be industrious, to work hard, all of these things. I'm not diminishing having money, but I'm speaking of the people that make that their priority in life. And that's what Jesus is speaking about here. And if you think of all of these ads on TV, you know, buy silver, invest in silver, buy gold, invest in gold, you're going to see in just a couple verses that that means nothing when the ball drops. Here's what he says, though, in Luke chapter 12. The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all my crops and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will these things be, which you have provided? So, so is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So what is it that would cause us to make this connection based on the verse that we're reading right now? I'm going to read it again. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the grain which they bought. The reason for the comparison is because of the verb which is used for gathered up all the money. It is the word velaket. This is the only time in the entire Bible that this verb is used for collecting money. At other times, when the Bible mentions gathering money, a different verb is used. This verb, velaket, is usually used concerning things on the ground, such as picking up stones, or when they went out to pick up manna, or picking up flowers, I think in the uh, book, The Song of Songs, or even the gleanings of wheat in the book of Ruth. The symbolism we see here, then, is money that is simply tossed away in the purchasing of grain. The imagery is like someone carrying up an entire bag of silver to the storehouse and simply 
tossing it down, and then walking away with a bag of grain. It is a time of absolute desperation, and the money no longer has any value at all. All they can think of is the food. And after the rapture, during the tribulation, those who realize their need will do anything to be given God's grace. This symbolism is exactly, exactly referred to in the book of Ezekiel. There we get a picture of what is happening at the time of the Lord's judgment on the land. Listen to how perfectly this mirrors the idea of this verb, velaket, and what it implies. Here's what Ezekiel says. They will throw their silver into the streets, and their gold will be like refuse. Their silver and their gold will not be able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. They will not satisfy their souls nor fill their stomachs, because it became their stumbling block of iniquity. And so the money is gathered up. It's picked up from the ground as if it were a pile of stones. Verse 14 continues. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. What silver there is, is now in the possession of Pharaoh. One Pharaoh, there's a guy named Remphis that these ancient uh, uh, documents have they found. He heaped up silver in this way to the point where he had accumulated four million talents of silver. A talent weighs about 75 pounds, so that means this guy had 300 million pounds of silver. Now, whether this is the Pharaoh at the time of Joseph or not, they, they just aren't certain. But that's a whole heap of silver. One way or another, it is certainly comparable to what Joseph would have collected, picking it up as if it were stones on the ground. Verse 15, so when the money failed in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, give us bread, for why should we die in your presence? For the money has failed. The famine continued on longer than their silver held out, and so the people have returned once again to Joseph. This time they're looking for a handout. And once again, it notes not just Egypt, but Canaan as well. The land of Canaan would not be worth returning to because it was caught in the midst of the same famine. Only in Goshen, where Israel was relocated to, was there security for the people and bread for their sustenance. It really is amazing to see how God once so carefully cared for Israel, and it is a sure promise to them that they will again be cared for during the tribulation by his amazing grace. It is those who take Jesus' advice in Matthew 24. He tells them to get out and flee to the mountains, flee out to the wilderness. Those are the ones that are going to be safe. The rest of the Jewish people in Israel, along with all of the Gentiles who are willing to seek Jesus, must endure the hardships. Verse 16, then Joseph said, give your livestock and I will give you bread for your livestock if the money is gone. This would be the sixth year of the famine. And we're going to be able to tell this in a couple more verses. In what is a very wise decision for Pharaoh and for the animals, Joseph proposes making an exchange for all of the livestock. This includes any type of animal of the herd, such as horses, cows, goats, camels, donkeys, sheep, whatever else. The word implies herding animals. The wisdom here is that if the people were short on food, they would do one of two things. They'd either eat their animals to survive, or they would simply feed themselves and the animals would die. But like the flood of Noah, the animals are cared for in a unique way. There would be enough food in those royal storehouses to care for the animals while also increasing Pharaoh's wealth. And the picture of the future tribulation, that comes into focus here as well. In Revelation, it says that no one will be able to buy or sell anything unless they have the mark of the beast. But anyone who takes the mark of the beast can never, never be saved. Therefore, in order to live, People have to trade. Without money, it will be the only way to survive. What is being pictured here is amazingly exact. 
verse 17. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them bread in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the cattle of the herds, and for the donkeys. Thus he fed them with bread in exchange for all their livestock that year. The exchange is made, and there's a very few possessions left of value to the people. Everything else has become Pharaoh's property. And we have to keep remembering that at this same time, Israel is in the land of Goshen. And they have, and they have maintained their flocks. And they're also prospering. The Egyptians are living on a subsistence diet and are doing so merely from day to day. At the same time, it's as if manna from heaven were falling on Israel as Joseph cared for the family. The connection to Revelation needs to be stressed again then. In Revelation chapter 12, it says these words. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman, which is uh, Israel, who gave birth to the male child, which is Jesus. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness, kind of Jesus' terminology, get out into the wilderness, to her place where she is nourished for a time, times, and half a time, meaning three and a half years, from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. The connection to the dragon also called the serpent then needs to be made. Here are a group of believers. They're God's covenant people of Israel being divinely protected by God, just as Joseph has cared for his family in Egypt. Isaiah will tie these two together. First in Isaiah 26, we read concerning the protection of Israel during the time of the Lord's judgment on earth. Here's what he wrote. Come, my people. Think of these people out in the tribulation period and how God is taking care of them. Come, my people, enter in your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation is past. For behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth will also disclose her blood and she will no more cover her slain. Then in the very opening verses of Isaiah 27, it says this, in that day, the Lord with his severe sword, great and strong, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, that twisted serpent, and he will slay the reptile that is in the sea. Leviathan is the serpent which represents the world system of false religion, and that corresponds in the Old Testament to Egypt and Babylon. It is the power of the devil to bring that false religion into the world. And this is certain because the term for serpent there in Isaiah is the word nachash. It's the same word that is used to describe the serpent in the Garden of Eden. And thus, it is also the same serpent that John speaks of referring back to that in the book of Revelation. What seems like a story about a famine in Egypt and the care of Israel during that famine is actually so much more. It is the ongoing biblical theme of good versus evil and how God works to protect his people while overcoming that evil and all of the terrible things which surround them. As we saw from before in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, God repeats history to show us that he is in complete control of history. Come and be safe in your chambers. Shut your doors behind you and keep them fast. Hide yourself from the outside dangers. Do this, my children, until the indignation is past. For behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish those in the earth for their iniquity. The earth will disclose her blood, the murderous disgrace, and no more will she cover the slain of man's killing spree. In that day, the Lord with his severe sword, great and strong, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Leviathan, that twisted serpent who is deceived for so long, and he will slay the reptile in the sea. He shall not relent. Our second thought today, what are you willing to give to be saved?
This is verses 18 through 22. Verse 18 says, When that year had ended, they came to him the next year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is gone. My Lord also has our herds of livestock. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our lands. This is now the ending of the sixth year and the beginning of the seventh year of the famine. Everything in Egypt has been reduced to poverty level subsistence living. The money is gone. The animals have been traded away and there is nothing but their bodies and their land to trade. And it's not all unlikely. People will debate this, but it is not at all unlikely. And it's even probable that they actually own their own lands at this time. This is only about 500 years after the flood. Shepherds at this time would have come in and out and they would have been in their tents and roamed around and they would have assumed no uh, claim to the land and nobody would have assumed they had any claim to the land. But the people who ventured into new lands and started breaking up the soil for harvesting crops would settle down and they'd claim the land as their own. As no one owned it before they did, it would be considered open to the first to make a living off of it. The land would be assumed to be owned by these people. So this, pers- this particular verse is especially likely at this time in Egypt's history. But now the Nile has failed them. The earth is dry and there is no relief from the famine except to give up their last remaining possessions, which is their lands and even themselves. And so the difficult offer that must be made is now presented. Verse 19, why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us in our land for bread, and we, we in our land will be servants of Pharaoh. Give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land may not be desolate. The only option here is either to die or to give up everything they have to become servants of Pharaoh. And in exchange for this servitude, they ask for, guess what? Seed. If nothing else confirms all of those interesting analysis from the previous sermons concerning the words for grain and food, especially the grain, shever and bar, this verse right here ought to do it. As I said earlier, there are certain special words that were used during the time leading up to the reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers to describe the grain. Then once again in verse 14, just a few verses ago, one of those words was used one more time. But now a completely different word is used. It is zera, meaning seed, not grain. It's speaking of exactly the same thing in exactly the same storehouses, but now it no longer pictures what it did before. This is the amazing treasure of searching out individual words as nuggets of God's wisdom. They're sown everywhere throughout this beautiful book. Zera means seed. It is how life is transferred. It is the word, for example, which was used in Genesis chapter 3, the 15th verse, when speaking of the coming Messiah. Remember that one? The seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. It's obvious what's being pictured here. These people must be willing to give their land and even their very lives in order to live. Jesus' words in Mark chapter 8 exactingly picture what's being relayed here. Remember the church age is over. This is already after the rapture. This is the final seven years promised to Israel, which comprise the tribulation period. People must endure to the end to be saved, which is not the case with us now. We call on Jesus and we are sealed with the Holy Spirit and we are saved. They must endure to the end. Here are Jesus' words. When he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world 
and loses his own soul? Or what will a man gain in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the son of man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with his holy angels. As the book of Revelation notes, many, many are going to be martyred for their faith in Christ. But those who are, the second death, meaning the lake of fire, will have no power over them. Verse 20. Then Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for every man of the Egyptians sold his field because the famine was severe upon them. So the land became Pharaoh's. This shows us with certainty that until this point, Pharaoh had no claim on the land that belonged to the individuals. Only now has he consolidated his power and his ownership entirely over the people and over their lands. And all of this has been done at the hand of Joseph. Interestingly, if you remember Joseph when he was born, it is almost a mirror picture of what his name means. His name Joseph came from two words. Unlike the other brothers of Israel, only he and Benjamin were named based on two words. Asaph, meaning to take away, and Yosef, meaning to add. In one period of seven years, he has taken away all that belonged to the Egyptians and he has added it to the wealth of Pharaoh. But notice in this verse, even though Canaan has been mentioned three times since verse 13, it is excluded from this verse. Canaan was never assimilated by Pharaoh, thus allowing for the continuing plan of God to unfold exactly as it should in the future. And what this pictures is even more revealing. The land of Canaan is God's land. It says that again and again in the Bible. He already owns it. The picture of Egypt being completely bought up by Pharaoh shows the final and the ultimate rule of God over the entire earth. This is seen throughout the Bible, such as in this verse from Revelation chapter 11, where it says, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Verse 21. And as for the people, he moved them into the cities from one end of the borders of Egypt to the other end. Now, some versions read differently in this verse because they're based on a different set of source texts. So your Bible, if you're looking at it, may say instead of he moved them into the cities, it might say he made servants or slaves of them. That is correct. Now, why would this be important? And the reason why the New King James Version is based on what's known as the Masoretic Text it's a text that was maintained by the Jews, and the oldest one is, I mean, many, many years after Christ. It's about the eight year, uh, 1500 or somewhere around there. Anyway, they have made a little uh, emendation in what they've written. And this is important because the Jews saying that Joseph enslaved the people would make Joseph look bad and thus imply that they are descendants of someone who did this bad thing. But it is more than possible that the other rendering is the one that's correct and that this is the wrong one. Instead, he brought them into servitude, which, by the way, is exactly what they had agreed to in the first place. Now, I don't mean to get into that minutia there and say one text is wrong and one is right, but there are older texts than the time of Jesus Christ that support that he made them servants or slaves. It's basically the same word, and that's why I want to focus on that. And it actually prefigures what is being seen in the book of Revelation. Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense. Verse 22, only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had rations allotted to them by Pharaoh, and they ate their rations which Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their lands. I can't help but see the verses from Revelation chapter 5 reflected in this verse here in Genesis. While the world is being subjected to servitude, 
there is a group of people who are exempt from that servitude. It includes the royalty and the priestly classes. Here's what it says in Revelation chapter 5. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you are slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. As Joseph is in charge of both Pharaoh's house and the priests because he married into the priestly class, this then shows us the authority of Christ as both our king and our high priest. Our third thought today, saved by grace. This is verses 23 through 26. Verse 23 begins with, Then Joseph said to the people, Indeed, I have bought you and your land this day for Pharaoh. Look, here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. We now see that it is the seventh year of the famine. Joseph was aware of the duration of the famine, even if the people weren't. But for him to tell them that they have seed to sow indicates that he knows that the time for sowing has come. Because Pharaoh now owns the land, Joseph would never tell them to sow in the land that wouldn't produce a harvest and thus waste what Pharaoh owns. So it's certain that this is that time in the famine where the famine is now ending. Just as Pharaoh has finally consolidated all of the resources and all of the power of the land of Egypt. This power is going to continue on for the next 200 years until Israel is freed from the land of Egypt during the reign of a different Pharaoh. And he's going to be destroyed by plagues of God at that time. But this verse is also picturing the salvation of the people during the tribulation period. Those who have given up everything have been given their seed. Their lives will continue. Again, the word zera, seed, not grain, is used. Verse 24. And it shall come to pass in the harvest that you shall give one-fifth to Pharaoh. Four fifths shall be your own as seed for the field and for your food, for those of your households, and as food for your little ones. This is the same percentage that was bought up by Pharaoh during the seven years of abundance before the time of famine. It was enough to save all of the people, including Israel, and to make Pharaoh the absolute ruler of Egypt, the land of double distress. Now, using this one-fifth as their payment for renting the land owned by Pharaoh, he would continue to grow in wealth and in power while the people would remain his indebted servants. Verse 25, So they said, You have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants. Here is a perfect picture of Jesus. First they say, you have saved our lives. Thus Joseph was the savior of the people. Remember, both as his name, his Egyptian name implied, Zafnath Pa'anea, meaning the savior of the world, and as the picture of Christ that he's been detailing through all of these sermons. And next they will say, let us find favor in the sight of my Lord. The word for favor here is the Hebrew word chen, which means grace. In essence, they are saying, by this grace, we are saved. It is an affirmative statement that they were saved by him and that the salvation was by grace. It is completely unmerited. And thirdly, they say that they will be Pharaoh's servants. Well, this is exactly how we become servants of God, through the saving grace of Jesus Christ, which is pictured by Joseph right here. The picture is so exact of what's being anticipated that it is simply amazing. And finally, as a sort of confirmation of this, the law of the land is then enacted by Joseph as we see in our last verse of the day, which is verse 26. And Joseph made it a law over the land of Egypt to this day that Pharaoh should have one-fifth except for the land of the priests, which did not become Pharaoh's. The number five, we've seen it again and again and again in these Genesis sermons, is the number of grace. 
The entire account today has shown us grace. Pharaoh's house, as ruled by Joseph, hasn't done something overbearing or reprehensible towards the people of Egypt. Instead, what has he done? He saved many people alive by a great salvation. And during the tribulation period, God's house, as ruled by Jesus, will neither make strict demands on the people either, but these demands will be both fair and they will be just, not overbearing or reprehensible. They will be the needed proof that they would rather forsake all for Christ than to die apart from him. This is the beauty, the beauty of the word of God. And it is the penalty for not receiving the word of God and not accepting him before the rapture. But there will be grace for many, many people during that tribulation period for those who do choose Christ. And so that you can see the marvelous work of Jesus for these people, we're going to take just a moment and I want to read you a portion of Revelation 7. And just think of what we've been looking at. Think of how it all prefigures what's coming in the future and the beautiful words that are recorded here by the hand of John. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, people, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders of the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes? And where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, washed their robes, made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne and serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger any more nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to fountains of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now, I know this was just a little bit long today. But what the Bible pictures about the future and what it tells us is coming is really going to happen. The saving message of the Bible is that Jesus loves us enough to keep us from eternal separation from the Father, from hell. And the Bible shows us that there is only one way that this is possible. That is through Jesus Christ. So I'd ask you to give me just another minute as I ask each week to explain to you how you too can receive this gift if you never have. The Bible says that we have all sinned, every one of us, and that the wages of sin is death. We die because we have sin in us. And there are two types of death that the Bible speaks of. The first is spiritual death. And that occurred in Adam. God said to Adam, you're going to die on the day that you do this thing. And he did that thing and he lived on for 930 years. And God isn't a liar, so we know that it was spiritual death. And that death is inherited in all people after Adam. We are born spiritually dead. That's why King David said that. I was born sinful from the womb, from, from birth. And that's our state before God. And we need to be born again in order to be brought back to life. The wages of sin is death. Well, we have that second death. It wears us out because we're in this fallen world and eventually our physical body dies. And if we don't take care of the spiritual part before we take care of our physical part dies, we're going to be eternally separated from God. But Jesus Christ came and gave his life for us. And he says, if you simply trust what I have done, you can't save yourself but I will save you. And you trust, it says that you will be spiritually reborn. You will be born again. 
And you can never lose that. God seals you with his spirit at that moment. And he will forever keep you from losing your salvation, no matter what you do. You'll lose your rewards, you'll lose your joy, but you won't lose your salvation. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So all that we have to do is just trust in Jesus Christ. So if you call on the name of the Lord. If you say, Jesus, I want you to be my Savior, that's all you need to do, and you will be saved. And from there, go to church, learn the Word, study your Bible, listen to Christian music, praise God all day and all night, thank Him for the wonderful things that He's done. So you don't have to go through what we're talking about today. We've been seeing it building up to this all the way through these sermons, and now we're in the time of tribulation. But God is gracious enough to save them even after the rapture if they're willing to prove it to him. Still by grace, they don't deserve it. Our closing verse today comes from Proverbs chapter 11. Think of what we just looked through. The people will curse him who withholds grain, but blessing will be on the head of him who sells it. Next week is Genesis 47, verses 27 through 31, just a couple verses, entitled, If I Have Found Grace in Your Eyes. That'll be our 119th Genesis sermon. And I'll tell you, I've, a couple people that haven't been here before, what I do every week before we close is uh, I take all of the verses that we looked at that day and I turn them into a poem. So we have almost a complete poem of the uh, book of Genesis now. And some of the poems were rather difficult, like the generations of Esau, like, 40 verses of just names, but it worked out. Well, we've got this poem that's going, and uh, before I read that poem to you that I've done for today's verses, I'd like to remind all of you that the Lord has you exactly where he wants you, and he has a good plan and a purpose for you. So call on him and let him do marvelous things for you and through you, all right? Our poem today is called Salvation Belongs to Our God. Now there was in all the land no bread, for the famine was most severe, so that the famine was very widespread. From Egypt to Canaan, they languished. Life was austere. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in Egypt, the land, and in the land of Canaan, for the grain which they bought from his hand. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house, so much there wasn't even room for a mouse. So when the money had failed in the land of Egypt and in Canaan, the land, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us bread, or we are dead. Please fill our hand. For why should we in your presence die? For the money has failed, things have gone awry. Then Joseph said, Give your livestock, and I will give for you your livestock bread. If the money is gone, we'll use this instead. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them bread in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the cattle of the herds, and for the donkeys who brayed on the range. Thus he fed them with bread in this time austere in exchange for all their livestock that year. When that year had ended, again they cried. They came to him the next year, and to him said, we will not from my Lord this thing hide, that our money is gone and we are almost dead. My Lord also has our herds of livestock. There's nothing left in the sight of my Lord, but our bodies and our lands. Now please hear our word. Why should we before your eyes be dead? Both we and our land, our options are so narrow. Buy us and our land for bread, and we and our land will be servants of Pharaoh. Give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land may not be desolate, because things have gone awry. Then Joseph bought all the, their land of Egypt for Pharaoh far and near. For every man of the Egyptians sold his field from his hand because the famine upon them was so severe. So the land became Pharaoh's and as for the people to them, he did attend. He moved them into the cities from one side of the borders of Egypt to the other end. Only the land of the priests he did not buy for the priests had rations to them by Pharaoh allotted. And they ate their rations, which Pharaoh gave them 
so they did not sell their lands where their homes were dotted. Then Joseph said to the people, Indeed, I have bought you and your land this day for Pharaoh. Look, here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land in the following way. And it shall come to pass in the harvest that you shall give one-fifth to Pharaoh. Four fish shall be your own to invest as seed for the field and for your food and your pet sparrow, and for those of your households too, and as food for your little ones, this you shall do. So they said, you have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants, we and our wives. To you we speak this committed word. And Joseph made it a law over the land of Egypt to this day, that Pharaoh should have one-fifth from every hand, except for the land of the priests only, he did say. This did not become Pharaoh's land. It was given only into the priest's hand. As the leader of the land, Joseph tended to the people well. They were cared for with food from his hand, while he also tended to the needs of Israel. In the same way, the Lord cares for each of us. Though at times we may face difficulty and trial, there is comfort always to be found in Jesus, and the tough times give way to a happy smile. Tender care for his sheep. This is the way of our Lord. He watches over us on our path as we walk along. And so much comfort is found in his word to give our hearts a joyful song. Thank you, Lord, for your care that you give to us. Thank you, Lord, our precious Savior, Jesus. Hallelujah and amen. Mm -hmm. Heavenly Father, how great are you that you give us grace when we don't deserve it. All through human history, all the way back at the beginning, we turned our backs on you and we've continued to do it. We saw your glory at Mount Sinai and we turned our stiff necks away. You delivered us in the land of the Philistines, in the land of Canaan. You gave us a home and we turned away. And we were exiled to foreign lands and we turned away. And then we'd turn our hearts back to you and you'd accept us. And this went on throughout human history. Israel, the church, all of us have turned away from you. We've fallen away from your glory and yet you continuously call us back and you continuously give us a chance to be saved. What a God you are. How could it be that there is that much love in all of the universe? And yet it's true. Your word tells us it. You sent us, your son, Jesus. Here we are saved by his precious blood. Thank you for that gift. Lord, please be with each person here. After we take communion, give them safe travel home and a wonderful week ahead and just bless them out of their socks so that they have no choice but to turn around and thank you and praise you and to remember you in the day and remember you in the night. Lord, you are great. We love you. And we do praise you. And we do so in the exalted, the magnificent name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Okay, we get the instructions for the Lord's Supper from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And because we have a couple new people here today, I'll explain uh, something uh, that you may not have heard about the elements in the past. This, this is known as matzah bread. This is what the uh, Jewish people eat every single year at the Passover. And they, you know, they say next year in Jerusalem and they hope for the return of Messiah or the coming of Messiah and all these things. And they don't realize that actually this is an ancient picture of Jesus Christ because it's bread without yeast. Yeast in the Bible is a picture of sin. And so uh, he was the sinless lamb of God. And then if you hold it up to the light, you can see all the way through it, lots of little holes where he was pierced in his back with the uh, Roman plague rod as they beat into him and up his back and then you can see the stripes on it the way it's cooked it actually is a picture of his back and his body that was broken for us and so this is what we remember in the Lord's Supper is that we proclaim his death until he comes and that's the purpose for doing that so we want to take this table and we want to treat it carefully and respectfully but uh, here are his, Paul's words from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 
He said, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And the Lord would have blessed this bread. He would have said these words, Baruch ata Adonai Eloheinu, Malecha olam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it, and he said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, after the supper, he took the cup, and he would have blessed this cup as well. He would have said these words, Baruch ata Adonai Eloheinu, Melech haolam, Borei peri hagachen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and of the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. So let's take a moment and just think on our past week, how we failed the Lord and how he's been so gracious to us. in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the 
Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen.